I have to tell you about being picked up at the airport. I don't know if that's the right phrase. Uh, (laughs) I'm standing outside the airport waiting for my ride, right, and this pretty young lady comes walking up to me and asks me if I want to ride to the Holiday Inn. Then we got here and they tried to give me some lady's room. (laughs) This is my kind of place. (laughs) My name's Dick. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I'm sober today through the grace of my higher power, whom I choose to call God, and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me when it was time for me to speak, I should tell what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I used to stand up here and say... I drank too often for too long till I crossed the line from social to problem to alcoholic drinking. But the longer I'm sober and the more I look back, I realize there was never a period of social drinking in my life. I don't remember my first drink or my first drunk. They evidently happened on the same night. (laughs) I was whatever age you are, as a little toddler running around, and my aunt and uncle were over sharing a bottle with my parents and I would go in the kitchen and climb on my mother's lap and get a taste, and I'd go out to the front room to my uncle and then back to my aunt. And later that night, they heard the thumping sound in the hallway. And when they went to investigate, here was this little kid bouncing off the walls trying to get to one more drink. That's my whole story. (laughs) We can go have ice cream. (laughs) Said, yay! (laughs) Oh, Oh, how to get sober. I spent the next 30 years bouncing off walls trying to get to one more drink. People changed, places changed, the drinks changed, the results never changed. So by the time I was in high school, I had figured out that if I drank, I fit in. If I drank, I could do anything. If I drank, I could go anywhere. And if I didn't drink, I didn't fit in and I couldn't do anything. So when my classmates were making their mistakes, learning from them and maturing, I was solving all my problems with alcohol. So by the time I got here, my maturity level is still back there. (laughs) Some people think it still is. (laughs) The day I got out of high school, my father took me to the front gates of the steel mills, said you have two choices. You can spend the rest of your life inside these gates doing hard physical labor, or you can find a way to get yourself down to college and and an education and a ticket out. And it took me about uh, two hours inside those gates to figure out that physical labor was not going to be my strong suit. So I did find a way to get myself to campus, uh, and I would like to share with you tonight some of my marvelous uh, (laughs) collegiate experiences. The truth is I don't remember. (laughs) You know, once I got to campus and all the restraints were removed, my drinking progressed. And my normal pattern was to wake up whatever time that happened to be find the largest bottle of whatever alcoholic beverage I could get and start the quote-unquote party. And I would drink for 12 or 18 or 24 hours. I would pass out. They would pick me up and throw me in a bed. I would sleep for 10 or 12 hours. I would get up and start again. Uh, The only problem with that is you tend to flunk out a lot, uh, which I did. But I stuck in there and I kept coming back, (laughs) much to their dismay. And I remember it was the beginning of my second senior year and I thought I, found <laughs> I thought I found the answer to my problems, so I married her, and then I had to graduate, and I figured if I had to go to work, I needed the type of job that would support me in the style to which I thought I should become accustomed, so I decided I should become a corporate executive, and I got myself a trainee job with a 
major corporation in downtown Chicago, a flat top, a gray flannel suit, I'm giving away my age, uh, a briefcase, and I headed off to climb the corporate ladder. And one of the requirements of the job that I was in was that I go to graduate school two nights a week and work on the master's degree. And what they did is they let us out about a half hour early so we could go get something to eat and down prepare for class. And the first night, this is the story of my life, the first night I just happened to meet some guys who instead of going to have dinner, we're going to go have a drink to celebrate the start of the new school year. And we went across the street on Michigan Avenue to a little cocktail lounge, and I discovered the nectar of the gods. It's called a martini. Now, I thought I'd died and went to heaven. So the next three years, two nights a week, instead of having dinner, I was having three or four or five martinis preparing for class. And interestingly enough, I always got to class. I did not always get to the right class. <laughs> and surprisingly, I did well in graduate school, and I did even better on the job, and I became the fair-haired boy, and they began to groom me. And one of the things they did was make me an expert in corporate planning. And I took those skills, and I applied them to my personal life, and I had a three-month, six-month, one-year, and three-year plan. And if you had asked me what the plan was, I would have told you it would be to get the next promotion, to get a raise, to get a newer car, to get a bigger house. But the truth was, I was scared to death and miserable, and I thought if I was making more money, if I had a newer car, I would find some peace and happiness. And I always beat the plan, I always got the raise, I always got the promotion, I never found any peace or happiness. So as soon as I was in the job, or two or three months after I was in each promotion, I had to start planning the next promotion, because that was the one that was gonna provide me with some peace and happiness. And then I discovered the secret to success in corporate America. What you do is you drink with your boss's boss. Then what happens one day, they call you down to the corporate office. Up in the personnel department, they have a walk-in vault with magnetized blackboards and name tags with magnets. And they pull back the curtain and say, here's the new organization chart for this division, and my boss would be working for me couple of problems with that. <laughs> I started to worry a lot about who the people who were working for me were drinking with because I, I figured everybody was doing the same thing I was doing. And I began to wonder whether I could handle the jobs I was getting promoted to because of the way I was getting promoted. So I had to get promoted at least once a year uh, because it would take them that long to figure out I didn't know what I was doing. And that worked all right till I was about 30 and there were only two jobs above me and both of those guys were better at playing these games than I was, and I wasn't going anywhere for about 10 years, so I did the only logical thing, I quit. Then <laughs> I went and became a corporate consultant. <laughs> I want to tell you, that is a terrific job for an active alcoholic. They pay you to drink with people. You know, at martini lunches, fancy wines with dinner, cognacs afterwards. But I didn't find any peace or serenity there either. Uh, so I did a geographic and career change, and I moved to Indianapolis to start my own practice. And uh, I wouldn't have all those problems. I wouldn't have all the pressure from above. I wouldn't have all the union issues. Uh, I'd be rewarded for my own efforts. And the only problem was I took me with me, and nothing changed. And I worked very hard. Outwardly, it was successful, and I was in the office early in the morning till late at night, six or seven days a week. And when I wasn't working, I was drinking. And that became my life. I worked, I drank, and I slept. My wife says I worked, I drank, and I passed out, but that's just semantics. <laughs> uh, 
I began to lose my tolerance. And I never knew when I sat down at a bar stool whether I was going to have one drink and be falling down drunk or whether I was going to sit there all night and it wouldn't phase me. did not stop me from picking up the first drink. I just never knew what was going to happen. I preferred to drink at home. Service was faster. The drinks were larger. And in the morning, I didn't have to worry where my car was or where I was. <laughs> the uh, blackouts started being more frequent uh, and lasted longer. I was always going to sue American Express when my bill came in. They kept charging me for airline tickets to towns I'd never been to, for restaurants I'd never heard of. You know, I never got around to it. Most of the yets uh, didn't happen to me. You know, I didn't lose my family. I didn't lose my business. I didn't run into any school buses. I didn't burn down any buildings. I was just so sick and tired for so long I thought I was normal. I knew that occasionally I drank too much, but then anyone with the pressures that I had would drink now and again. And anyone who drinks now and again would occasionally drink too much. And if it ever gets that bad, I'll quit. And my definition of bad kept changing. Remember, it was a Saturday, April 13th, 1974. It was the end of season. I remember driving home. I remember fixing the first martini to start the party. And the next thing I knew, it was early in the morning on Monday, April 15th. And I was sitting in my favorite drinking chair, and it was one of those moments of clarity. And I was looking at my life, and I knew I could not go on. I knew I could not continue the way I was going. So I had to develop a plan. And after two or three scenarios, it became obvious that all I wanted to do was to drink, and it was probably going to kill me, and it was okay. At that point in my life, that was just okay. But I knew that I couldn't sit in that chair and drink 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at least not peacefully. <laughs> so, so I had to have another plan, and like I said it was the end of the season. I hadn't been paying attention to my practice. I hadn't been paying the bills and all things like that, and there was a fair amount of money in the bank. And I was going to go down and take all the money out in cash. And I was going to go out to the airport. And with that American Express card that kept charging me for tickets I never used, I was going to buy a ticket under my name for New York. And I was going to slip in through check-in. And then I was going to go down the hall and for cash under another name buy a ticket to Los Angeles. Uh, now, who at this point in my life I thought was going to come looking for me, I don't know. But I had to have this elaborate plan. And when I got to Los Angeles, I was going to get a room over a liquor store that was open 24 hours and delivered. <laughs> and I was going to sit in that room and drink, and hopefully I would die before I ran out of money because that was as far as the plan went. And I fell asleep for a couple of hours. I woke up and for some reason decided to keep an appointment in downtown Indianapolis. And I drove down there, and the client uh, didn't show. And I was heading back to the office to get the checkbook, and the next thing I knew, my car was on the sidewalk, front bumper against the phone booth, and I was talking to the intergroup office of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know today how that happened, but at that time, I had no idea what AA was, why I would call them, or where I got the number. And this delightful lady was telling me how nice it is on the other side of the bottle. And she wanted to know whether she needed to keep me in that booth until she could get someone there or whether I could make it to that night without taking a drink and she'd have someone come to the house. And I got a little indignant. <laughs> Just because I pulled my car up on the sidewalk at 8 o'clock in the morning and call Alcoholics Anonymous does not necessarily mean that I have a problem. 
And I finally, finally convinced her that I could make it till that night, and I gave her my name, address, and phone number, and then I had another problem. I had to call my wife and tell her that I had called Alcoholics Anonymous, and one of those people was going to be coming to our home. And I was sure she'd say, there's no way you could be an alcoholic, call them up and cancel. <laughs> that was not her reaction. <laughs> That night, this elderly gentleman came to the door, smiling from ear to ear. You know how they do when they think they got you, you know. (laughs) I don't know what I was expecting, but it certainly wasn't right. And he told me some of his story and what had happened to him. And then he gave me a pamphlet they were using in Indianapolis at that time, 40 questions. And he said, now, don't worry about your answers to these questions. You don't have to share them with anyone. Just go over in the corner, sit down, and be as honest as you can be. And I thought, I've got them. I am an expert at taking tests. There's 40 questions. I can miss seven or eight. That's 20%. That would give me an 80. That has to be passing. (laughs) So I went through and gave myself the benefit of the doubt, missed my seven, eight, nine, whatever it was, and I got to the end and said, if you answered yes to one of these questions, (laughs) you need to take a look at your drinking. If you answered yes to two, you may have a problem. And if you answered yes to three, there's no doubt about it. And I told Roy the test was rigged, and that's how AA increased its membership. (laughs) (laughs) I've since found out that there are people that can pass that test. I just never associated with any of them. (laughs) I also found out my score was a lot higher than seven, eight, or nine. Then Roy asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting, and I didn't want to go to any meeting, but I was pretty well boxed at that point, so I agreed to go. And we went, and it was a speaker's meeting. There were about 80 people there, all of them smiling. (laughs) My life's falling apart. I end up in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and they're all delighted to see me. (laughs) There was something there. I couldn't identify it. It took me months to figure it out. It was love and peace and serenity, and I hadn't had any of those for so long I didn't recognize them. And a man got up that night, and he told my story. He just absolutely told my story. Now... I don't want you to think I have an ego problem or anything. (laughs) But I was so sure they wanted me to join AA that what they did is they called my wife. They got my whole story. (laughs) So this guy'd stand up there, he'd tell my story. I think I was an alcoholic and I would join AA. (laughs) Then they could put my name on the letterhead or whatever it was they wanted to do. Uh, after the meeting that night, a man came up to me and he said, if you want to drink tonight, do you have enough money to buy a fifth of whiskey? And I assured him that I did. And he said, good, you have enough money to buy a big book. And he said, <laughs> 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 he, he took me up to the literature, well, he took me up to the literature table and took my money is what he did. But, so he gave me this book and he said, this book tells the story of how the first 100 men and women found a way to live without the necessity of alcohol, and if that's what you want, I would suggest that you read this book, study it under the guidance of a sponsor, and put its principles into effect in your life. And they sat me down and suggested that I go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and I told them I was just far too busy to be able to do that, and they just smiled, and then they gave me all the slogans, you know, keep it simple, easy does it, let go, let God, and I said, no, I'm not, look. Those slogans are fine for these guys with the wet brains that can't understand anything, but I'm an educated man. (laughs) And what you need to do is give me the theory behind how Alcoholics Anonymous works, and I'll take this book and some of these pamphlets, and I'll go home and figure this out, and I'll get back to you. 
And <laughs> they smiled and said, fine, you just keep coming back. And Roy told me he would be my temporary sponsor for 90 days. And during that period, he would take me around to meetings, introduce me to people, answer any questions I might have, and generally be available 24 hours a day should I need him. And that during that 90 days, I was to find someone uh, who had the type of sobriety I would like to have and ask him, it was pointed out it had to be a him, have him to be my sponsor. And at the end of 90 days, it was really very simple. I asked Roy to be my sponsor because from that day to this, I've yet to meet a man who had the serenity that he had. There was just one problem. Roy had drank for a long time, and he had a speech impediment. He could not talk in full sentences. All he could say was little short phrases. Don't drink. Go to meetings. You know, he reminded me of one of those dolls with the pull string. You know, it didn't matter what you said. <laughs> My life's falling apart. Don't drink. You don't understand. Go to a meeting. You know. <laughs> I, I, I am happy to report that he did get to the point he could carry on a regular conversation. <laughs> but it took a lot of work. <laughs> so at that point, I didn't know whether I was alcoholic or not. And if I was, I didn't know whether I wanted to do anything about it. But I was pretty well out of options, and I thought I might as well try this for a while and see what happened. So I entered what I call my first phase of recovery. And for me, over my sobriety, there have been many different phases. And a phase will last anywhere from three or four weeks to four or five months. Some phases are recurring, and occasionally I'm in more than one phase at the same time. But I call my first phase the bewilderment phase, you know, otherwise known as what's a nice guy like me doing at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, because I really didn't think I belonged here. And my definition of an alcoholic at that time was an old guy, and I was younger then, drank cheap wine out of paper bags and slept under viaducts. And I only drank expensive wine, and when I slept under viaducts, it was always in a big car. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, in my mind, there was a difference. <laughs> but I didn't have to sit around these tables for very long to figure out I was in the right place. My next phase was the walking on eggshell phase, and this covered the period of time from when I came into AA and my wife started going to Al-Anon to get help for herself. And everybody tiptoed around the house, don't do anything to make him drink. <laughs> I love this phase. <laughs> <laughs> If I didn't want to do something, I just say, oh, if I have to do that, it's going to make me so nervous and so upset, I might drink. And she said, oh, don't do it. And I'd say, okay. <laughs> then she started going to Al-Anon to get help for herself, and her story became, you'll drink if you want to drink, and that's your problem. And that was the end of that phase. <laughs> <laughs> then I went into a why did I drink phase. And I was sure that there had to be something wrong with my blood chemistry or some traumatic experience that happened to me when I was a child that caused me to drink the way that I drank. And they sat me down and told me, said, if you have, in fact, crossed the line into alcoholism, you have a disease for which there's no knowing cure. But your illness can be arrested if you would just spend half as much time trying to work this program. Then I went into my trophy phase. And I was sure there had to be an annual banquet of Alcoholics Anonymous at which they gave out a trophy to Rookie of the Year. <laughs> and I figured that went to the newcomer who got through the 12 steps in the shortest period of time. And I was going to win it. So I prepared a plan. 
that I was going to be through the first step about 10 in the morning and be the second step about 3 in the afternoon. And I want you to know if you only work those parts of the steps that apply to you, there really isn't anything to this. And <laughs> I was able to admit that I was powerless over alcohol, but my life certainly was not unmanageable, and that took care of the first step. And I was going along pretty well until about midnight one night. I was on the 12th step, and it was time for my spiritual awakening. And uh, I had converted my drinking chair into a meditation chair, and I had a thermos of coffee, a big book, a 12 and 12, a stack of pamphlets, and the Bible. And I sat down to have my spiritual awakening. <laughs> I sat there all night. That's what I did. <laughs> I tried it with the lights on and the lights off. I tried, <laughs> I tried it standing up, sitting down, and kneeling down, and nothing happened. In the morning, I called Roy. I said, this program doesn't work. <laughs> said I was on the 12th step, which certainly was news to Roy. <laughs> it was time for my spiritual awakening. I sat up all night. Nothing happened. Roy said, don't drink. Go to a meeting. <laughs> I had one of my uh, many pity pot phases. You know, I hadn't been drinking for a while, but I certainly wasn't sober, but I wasn't, you know, I, I was dry. And uh, I went to that same speaker meeting, and that night they were trying to recruit somebody else. And the man told a different story, and I sat there saying, well, if he's an alcoholic, I'm not. And at the end of the meeting, I could have said anything to any of those 80 people, and they would have stayed with me as long as necessary to help me through that. But I didn't. You know, the meeting was over. I was out the door, went down to one of my favorite drinking holes. I don't remember what I ordered. It wasn't something uh, that I normally drank. I drank about half of it, put it down, went home, went to sleep, got up in the morning, said, aha, I'm not an alcoholic. I had one drink and stopped. Didn't even drink all of it. I don't feel guilty. AA hasn't ruined my drinking. I must not be an alcoholic. And I began to plan the next drink. And that drink was going to take a lot of planning because I needed a motel room, a case of bourbon, several hundred dollars. Uh, and while I was trying to get that together, Roy called on a Sunday morning and said, get up. Uh, we're going to go to a breakfast meeting. Now, I hadn't been telling Roy anything except what I thought Roy needed to know, uh, but he knew I was in trouble. So he spent that entire day with me, and I opened up for the first time and told him what was going on. And that night I went to a discussion meeting and shared with the group where I was because I had been dry now long enough to know that I was, in fact, an alcoholic and that if AA didn't work for me, I was going to die an alcoholic death, and I no longer wanted to die. And they spent that hour sharing their experience, uh, strength, and hope with me. And I left there with hope, hope for the first time that this program could work for me. And I went into a let's work the steps with the guidance of a sponsor phase. And I would like to tell you from that point forward, whatever Roy told me to do, I did. <laughs> but, this <laughs> but this is an honest program, and you wouldn't believe me anyway. <laughs> But I had become teachable, and I had become willing. And when I went to him with a problem, and he said, my sponsor told me to try this. Why don't you try it? Instead of saying, yes, but, I tried it. And I found that I was not so unique. And what worked for my sponsor and his sponsor before him worked for me. And things started to get a little better. And they told me that it was suggested that I not make any major changes in my life for the first year. <laughs> they did tell me that. But I figured I was doing everything twice as fast, 
So after six months, without guidance from my sponsor, I decided I couldn't keep that business and stay sober, so I sold it. And then I went into one of my many what-am-I-going-to-be phases, and uh, I was perfectly willing to accept that God got you all sober so that you could lead normal, productive lives. But that ego I don't have kept telling me that God got me sober for some great purpose that had not yet been revealed. And while, <laughs> and while, I, was, while I was looking for that, I also went into a save-them-all phase, and I decided that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous was far too valuable to restrict to alcoholics and think how wonderful the world would be if everybody practiced these principles in all their affairs. And then it came to me. God got me sober for some great purpose, and the message of Alcoholics Anonymous needed to be carried to the world at large, then God probably got me sober so that I could do that, and he probably wanted me to do it from a pulpit, and I should become a minister. <laughs> and if you can follow that logic, you're in the right room. <laughs> And there was a seminary there that took some interdenominational students, and I went to them and I told them where alcohol had taken me and how AA was working in my life, and that I thought God got me sober so I could deliver the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the world at large. And I want you to know they were sicker than I was, and they, they thought it was a great idea. And each guy opens up the drawer and he takes out an enrollment form, and I start to sign up to go to the seminary. And the questions weren't bad till we got. <laughs> So we got to the one, what denomination are you going to be ordained? And I said, what? He said, what, or, you know, what denomination are you going to be ordained? I said, oh, do we have to answer that now? I haven't been to church for 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went, I was a Catholic, and I knew they weren't going to let me be a priest. You know, so. He said, no, no, that's a third-year question. Everybody takes the same courses the first two years. You don't have to decide till your third year. And I thought, maybe what I ought to do is go out and get a job in a field in which I was trained and go to church for a while and see if I could figure out what ministers do the other six days because I didn't have a clue. And I sent out some resumes, and within a week I had a job. Uh, only problem was the job was in central Illinois, and Rory wouldn't move. So I had to go over to Illinois without my sponsor, and he told me the first thing I needed to do was go to 90 meetings in 90 days, uh, so I went to one of their meetings, and they didn't have a clue how this program was supposed to work. And I would stand up in the middle of the meeting, and I said, just, it's a miracle. that <laughs> It's a miracle that any of you are sober at all. <laughs> as little as you know about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they, <laughs> they would just smile as they keep coming back. <laughs> And I would drive three and a half hours one way back to Indianapolis to go to real AA meetings and to give them a, a report on what was going on <laughs> in central Illinois and that they really needed to send some help over there. And they sent me down. They said, you moved over there. You have to go to meetings over there. Uh, you've been taught how this program works for you. You need to go back over there and you go to your meetings and work your program for you and don't worry about what they're doing or not doing. Uh, so I did. I went back over there, and I started going to meetings for myself and working my own program, and you would be surprised how much better they got. <laughs> then I went into another save-them-all phase, only this time I restricted myself to alcoholics. Unfortunately, not necessarily alcoholics who wanted to stop drinking. <laughs> I would haul them to meetings. I, 
I'd call them up all the time. I'd circle their house at night, you know, and check up on them. It was just, oh, it was awful. And uh, <laughs> they sat me down again. You'll notice throughout this thing, they sit me down a lot. And they said, they explained to me that, you know, my job was to carry the message, not the alcoholic, and I was to be the conduit through which God's message was delivered. And if they got sober or not was between them and their higher power. And if they got sober, I wasn't going to get a medal. And if they drank, it wasn't my fault. And then we went into a growing together phase. And I was going to my AA meetings working my program for myself. And Carolyn was going to her Al-Anon meetings working her program to the best of her ability for herself. And we would come home and we would sit up to all hours sharing the topics. And then we began to grow together. Until we got to the point, she was not only my wife, but my best friend. And for that, I thank God every day for the program of Al-Anon. And things got a little better there, and I got a new sponsor, and I finished the steps. And about three and a half years later, the handwriting was on the wall at the company I was at, and it became obvious to me that I needed to make a move. Only this time, I sat down with my sponsor and we went through my motives and where I was in my career and what I was doing, and we agreed that it was time to make a move. The only problem was I was now 40 years old, and I didn't think I could keep making these moves all the time and starting over, and a lot of stuff was going on in the world, and God was kind of busy, and he might not realize the importance of this particular move, so I thought I needed to help him, so I gave him a list of questions that I needed answers to, uh, 30 of them. You know, I needed to know that I could sell my house relatively quickly. I needed to know I could sell it for a certain price because I needed the money. I needed to know where I was supposed to move because there had to be, I was going to check, make sure that there's a lot of good AA. And, uh, of course, I needed to know that I was going to be successful because I couldn't go somewhere and fail. And so I put myself through six, eight weeks of just sheer misery. And uh, I was driving over to Indianapolis for a board meeting thinking about this because I didn't think about anything else but this. And it came to me that if, in fact, I had turned my life and my will over to the care of my higher power, then I didn't need to worry about what the answer to the 30th question was before I took the first action. Because if my spiritual program was in balance, I was going to be okay, even though the outcome might be different than what I planned. So when I got there that morning, I went in and I resigned. That was the first thing I needed to get rid of that job. Then I called Carolyn and said, you better do something about that house. I don't have a job. And I stayed there uh, for meetings all day to go through help with the transition. And I got home that night about 7.30. House was sold. Paid asking price. Cash buyer. Close any time you want. And I said, okay, God, that's a pretty good start. <laughs> uh, you better tell me where I'm supposed to move because I don't have a job and I don't have a place to live. And a couple of days later, there was a realtor there that went around and put little plastic bags on doorknobs, and they had brochures with pictures of homes they had for sale. And our neighbors on both sides and everyone we knew in the program got a brochure of homes for sale in Bloomington, Illinois, and we got a brochure of homes for sale in Orlando, Florida. And I called the broker and told him what happened. He said, I don't know what to tell you, but we're a member of an association. All the printing is done in St. Louis. And I don't know how it could have happened, but one of their brochures got mixed in with ours and ended up on your door. And I said, never mind, I know how it happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. Carolyn got on an airplane, flew to Florida, and bought a house. Now, that's kind of an extreme example. But when my program is in balance and I'm turning my will over to the care of my higher power, 
things like that happen in my life all the time. So we moved down, sold that house, moved down uh, to Florida, to Orlando. Uh, first night there, I went to a meeting, walked in. First person I saw, I said, hi, my name's Dick Gallagher. I'm an alcoholic. I just moved here from Illinois. And this guy <laughs> gave me a real funny look, and he took a step backwards, you know, and he said, we don't care how you did it in Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, no, it's okay with me, you know, I've been there, done that, you know, any way you guys want to do it's fine with me, and they do it just fine in Central Florida, but then I went into an easy does it phase that was so easy, uh, I almost went bankrupt, uh, actually, <laughs> actually, I was bankrupt, I just wouldn't admit it, I was absolutely convinced God sent me down there to open this business, and I was going to make a bazillion dollars, so I rented an office, bought a desk chair and an adding machine, and I sat back and waited for the phone to ring. In fact, I wasn't in the phone book, did not bother me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> so I started going around to meetings saying, God sent me down here to open this business, then he deserted me. You know? And an old-timer took me aside and he said, you know, God might well have a plan for your life but he cannot direct your footsteps when you're standing on both feet, and maybe it'd be a good idea if you went out and started doing something for yourself. So I started changing my behavior, and things started to get a little better, but uh, my Illinois sponsor wouldn't move either. You know, that's something you need to understand about sponsors. They do not move. And so I was down there without a sponsor, and I was in a mess, and I was getting sicker and sicker, so I decided I'd better find a sponsor. Uh, so I went into a perfect sponsor phase, because <laughs> I couldn't have just any sponsor. I'd been sober four years now. <laughs> it had to be somebody who had a better program than I did, which at that point was 99.9% .9 of the membership. <laughs> so I decided what I would do is I would invite these guys out uh, for coffee and I would interview them. <laughs> and I made up a list of questions to ask them to see if they were practicing all these, principle, these principles in all their affairs. And of course, I couldn't let them know they were being interviewed because I didn't want them to be all upset if they didn't get it. <laughs> and of course, no one passed, you know. So I just kept getting sicker and sicker. And finally, I knew that if I didn't get somebody, I was going to drink. So I said, okay, God, I don't care. I just need a sponsor. Whoever it is, just send me a sponsor. In the next three meetings I went to, the subject was sponsorship. And the same man was at all three meetings. I said, oh, no, God, not him. <laughs> and Tom became my sponsor. And uh, over the 20 years before he died, he uh, also became a very good friend and a mentor. And he told me if I wanted the benefits from this program, I had to get involved and start giving back. Um, and that's what he directed me to do. And I want you to know that, you know, today uh, all of the promises have been fulfilled in my life. It's rare for me to have a bad day all day because you have given me the tools on how I can restart a day at any time. You know, I can say serenity prayers wherever I am. I can excuse myself and go in my office and get out my big book and read a few pray pages. Uh, I can pick up the phone and call another alcoholic. Things get really bad. I can call my sponsor. Uh, <laughs> I still think that the name of this program is, is incorrect. Uh, instead of alcoholism, it should be called Morism because it doesn't make any difference whether it's a martini 
or a hot fudge brownie delight. If one's good, two is better. Three's marvelous. Four is wonderful. And five, oh my Lord, five. And that's the way I live. And my whole life and my training and my work experience has been on how to get from point A to point B in the most efficient manner. And I got very good at doing that. And when I came into this fellowship, I tried to do the same thing with this program. And while that might get you through the steps, you miss everything in between along the journey. So I am learning to stop and smell the roses, to enjoy that. I don't do it every day, but to enjoy this trip. Uh, you know, if we're uh, if we stay sober long enough in this fellowship, a lot of good things happen to us. But we also have our share of the bad. Okay, there's nothing in my copy of the big book that says if I don't drink, go to meetings and work with others, that bad things won't happen in my life. My copy of the big book says, if I don't drink, go to meetings, work with others, give away what's been so freely given to me, I will be okay in the midst of. Excuse me. My story keeps involving. I wasn't going to talk about this, but it's part of my story. This is reality. I think I'll get through it. Last September, Labor Day, that lady who grew to be my best friend was diagnosed with lung cancer, and it went six weeks start to finish. This fellowship engulfed us at that time. We were blessed. We had those days together. We had 41 years. I had 41 great years. Carolyn had 28. <laughs> you know, and we got through our amends to each other, and we talked about all, how grateful we were for all of the things that we got to do. And if she hadn't passed, she would have been with me tonight. I have only given my story. When she died, uh, a month after that, I was at an area assembly, and I gave my story, and that was the first time in 28 years I gave my story without her here. So she told me it would be all right, it would just be different. And I'm going on, and with the help of marvelous people like you and all the friends that I've made in this program, things are all right. Things are going to be okay. Uh, you know, it talks in the last paragraph of the big book how we'll meet each other as we trudge this road to happy destiny. And I want to share with you just a little bit what my journey has been like. You know, when I decided I wanted what you had, I started watching what you were doing. And I noticed that the people who had what I had always came early and talked with the people and the newcomers. So I started coming early. And after I was doing that for a while, they said, you know, you've been coming early. Uh, why don't you help set up the chairs? And I became part of it. That moment, I became part of. So I started setting up the chairs. I got to know some of the people a little better. And then I noticed that those people also stayed late after the meeting and talked with the people. So I started staying after the meeting, and they said, you know, you've been coming regularly, you've been setting up the chairs, you're staying afterwards, as long as you're here, why don't you help take down the chairs? And I became more of a part of. And then they came to me after a while, and they said, you know, you've been doing a good job, you've been coming, helping setting up and taking down the chairs, we think you should have a job. We think you should be the ashtray chairman. Mm -hmm. 
And that became my job. Now, you could help gather the ashtrays, and you could help empty them. <laughs> Don't you wash them. <laughs> That's my job. You know, you might break them. You don't know how to do it. <laughs> and after a while, they came and they said, you know, you've been doing a good job showing up all the time and doing a good job washing the ashtrays. But you know, John over there, he's been coming for a while now, and he needs a job, and we think he should become the ashtray chairman. And I had my first AA resentment. <laughs> but they said, we think you should make the coffee. Yeah, now I had no clue how to make coffee. <laughs> I thought that's why they put the coffee in those size cans. That was a pot. <laughs> From that job forward, <laughs> every service job I've had, I've learned on the job. And I started off doing things like that. So that home group that I've had since December 1978 when I moved down there uh, has been kind enough, loving enough, and forgiving enough to let me work through every chair, every position we have in that group. And, uh, you know, I have a very, my home group has their stuff together, you know, because we have a policy that if you want to open the meeting, uh, open and set up and all that, you had to be sober six months. And if you were sober six months, we gave you a key to that church. Right? However, if you wanted to be cake chairman, you had to be sober two years. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we needed to know you were going to show up, you know. <laughs> then one day they came to me and they said, we think it's time for you now. You have enough experience. We think you should be the GSR. And I got elected to GSR. In my home group, there's normally two or three people standing for that job. You know, we do not select the person who's in the bathroom. Right? We, <laughs> we elect somebody for that job. And I got to go to the district meetings where there were all these other GSRs that were working on the same problems. And I got to go to the area assembly. Here's another 200 GSRs. And it was just marvelous. And we got to sit around and we talked about, you know, how do you get them to listen to your report? You know, how do you get them to finance your trip? How do you get them to do all these things? You know, we didn't solve any problems. We just talked about them. And uh, it was just great. You know, I enjoyed that job. It's such a fabulous job. And all you new GSRs, welcome. And you are starting on a terrific journey. And then after a couple of years, and I went to the area assembly, you know, and they had all the big honchos up there on the table. You know, we had delegates and we had chair people and all of that. And with the other GSRs, and I'm thinking, you know, if I work real hard and I study all this material, one day I will be a DCM. That was my goal, to get to be a DCM. And I got to be the DCM, and I'll tell you what, what a trip that is. You know, I had 45 groups, uh, and I got to go visit all of those groups. I got to talk to the ones that didn't have GSRs about, you know, why they needed a GSR. I got to find ways to get GSRs. I helped the GSRs. Uh, managed to get their groups to support them. We had all these debates, should we sign slips, not sign slips, all that wonderful stuff. You know, we didn't solve any of those problems either. We just talked about them. And then in uh, the spring or the fall of 1996, the North Florida Area Assembly gave me the great privilege of electing me as their delegate. And I serve on panel 47, which would be 1997. 
Uh, and I think there was a conspiracy. You know, when, well, first let me tell you, I did, I, when I thought about standing, I went to my sponsor, who was a past delegate, and said, you know, I'm thinking about standing to delegate. Do you think I can do that job? And he said, read the service manual. And if you think you can meet the job description, then you have an obligation to stand. So I went home and I read the service manual for the delegate, and I said, I can do that. And I went and stood, and, and after I was elected, I went to him and said, what do I do now? And he said, read the service manual. <laughs> and I read the service manual and said, oh, my God, I can't do that. <laughs> so all the past delegates, this is where the conspiracy was. They came to me one by one, but I'm convinced that they met together and uh, decided that the best thing to do was approach me one by one. And they came up and they all said the same thing. Said you need to learn to go with the flow, because <laughs> that's not my strong suit. I like to just take hold and charge, and that I had to learn to listen, and that was my primary job as the delegate for that area, and that was to go to the area assembly and to listen to what the GSRs were telling me were their concerns, and I got to go around to workshop and conferences all over North Florida and to listen to what they thought the problems were and the solutions. And I got to go to New York to the conference, and I shared my area's concerns, and I listened to the other 90-some delegates express the concerns of their areas, and then I voted my conscience, and then I went back, and I gave the report to the area and the districts and all over, the, and I got to do that cycle twice, you know, and then they say it's time, we have a thing called rotation. I gained 20 pounds, too, during that. They do feed you a lot when you're delegate. That's a great deal. And, I <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, the rotation, now things over. I, so I went back to my home group and said, I'll make the coffee. And they said, no, we have a newcomer that needs that job. Uh, but if you'll sit over there, if we have problems, we'll come talk with you. And that's what the area did. In North Florida, the delegates may not go to the microphone. Past delegates do not go to the microphone. Uh, they do not have a vote. Uh, they have special seating uh, in the back of the room. If you have binoculars, you can see. <laughs> and I was on my pity pot a lot. And uh, two years later, uh, North Florida again gave me the privilege of standing as the, their nominee for the Southeast Regional Trustee. Uh, and at the conference that year, uh, I was elected to serve uh, the Southeast as the trustee so that I have four years uh, as the regional trustee and I go around to functions like this and I go around to all of the areas. Uh, I go to New York every six weeks. Um, I hate airports. <laughs> so that's why I got this job. God always gives me the things I don't like to do. And uh, I am having just the most marvelous experience. Uh, it's just wonderful. I cannot tell you. Uh, how I wish that each of you would have a chance to be the delegate, and there are future delegates out here, I know, uh, to go to the conference. And I would just wish for each of you that your journey through this fellowship would be as wondrous as mine has been, and I'm sure is going to be. And one more phase, uh, I'm going to finish. Oh my gosh, we'll be early for ice cream. Uh, one more phase that uh, I've been in so long, it's more uh, a way of life than it is a phase. And there was a period of time when uh, I was going, I 
was working my program. I had a sponsor. I was working under his guidance. I had a home group, and I was filling my share of the responsibilities of that home group. I was giving away what was so freely given to me, and I was miserable. And I'm a little vocal, uh, so I went to my sponsor and said, when does this joyous and free stuff start? And he said, your problem is your attitude, and your attitude is a direct reflection of your gratitude or lack thereof. And I assured him that I was the most grateful alcoholic that he ever worked with. <laughs> and he says, okay, I tell you what we'll do. You get yourself a notebook, and I still carry one. And he said, you go around this week, and everything you are grateful for, you write down in a notebook, and then we'll meet after the meeting, and we'll go over it. So I bought the notebook, and I went running around all week. And I was just very busy, and so I hadn't written anything down. And we got to the meeting, we went out for coffee, and he said, let me see the notebook. And I said, well, I didn't write it down, I thought I'd just tell you. And he said, no, no, you don't get it. You know, go around again this week, and this week write them down. So I went around doing all my busy, busy stuff, and it was time to go to the meeting. The paper was blank, so I wrote the standards. You know, I'm grateful I'm alive, I'm grateful for AA, I'm grateful I'm sober. And after the meeting, he looked at that, and he tore it out, ripped it up, and he said, no, no, you still don't get it. This week, find one thing for which you're grateful. And I thought, oh, <laughs> and then one thing I'd done right from the very beginning, on the very first night they told me to get up a few minutes early before the rest of the family, read the piece of AA literature, and then be quiet and listen to the higher power that you don't even know you have. And just start out doing that and just listen. And uh, other than 20, 25, maybe 30 days in the last 28 years, I've done that every morning. And I've developed a very personal relationship with my higher power. And I just talk with him like I would talk to one of you. And I start out every morning saying, God, my name's Dick. I'm an alcoholic. Keep me from the first drink today. And then I just talk, you know, about whatever. And then I listen as best I can. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, I got a problem. I need something to be grateful for by the end of the week. <laughs> and it came to me, you know, I was grateful for indoor plumbing. And from indoor plumbing, I became grateful from hot water. And from hot water, I became grateful for toothpaste. And the more things I thought of to be grateful for, the more grateful I became. And I became grateful for little birds that sing and flowers that bloom. And so today, when I'm such a hot shot and I get up and don't have time to do a gratitude list and rush through my meditation, go dashing out the front door and I have a flat tire, my day's shot, I'm kicking the tires, I'm yelling at God, I'm blaming everybody. If instead I take a few minutes and remember to be grateful for hot water and for little birds that sing, then when I go out the front door and I have a flat tire, I say, thank God I have a spare. Thank you for helping me stay sober.